0: Hello everyone, my name is Wesley Levisay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at War. Com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Grey History. Today's episode is a special interview with Mark Schaus of the Russian Rulers History Podcast. In this episode, we're going to be discussing everything to do with the magnificent Catherine the Great of Russia. Considered one of the leading enlightened monarchs of the age, we'll touch on how this foreign princess came to rule the Russian throne, her reforms, her policies, her wars. And of course, her relationship with French philosophers and the French Revolution more broadly. The Russian Rulers History Podcast is a great show, and there's literally hundreds of episodes to dive into. You can find the Russian Rulers History Podcast on all major podcast platforms, and there's a link in the show notes. A big thank you to the patrons of the show for keeping Grey History on the air, and I'll introduce the newest members of the community in the next regular episode. A reminder that patrons on the true revolutionary tier and above get early access to new episodes, and episode 45, First Republic, Then Dictatorship, is waiting for you right now, as is a behind-the-scenes video covering episodes 44 and 45. So, if you're keen for some more Grey History after this episode, help support the show on Patreon today. As always, thank you to everyone who is supporting Grey History and I hope you enjoy this special interview on one of the greats. Welcome to Grey History. Mark Shouse and Catherine the Great. Hello everybody and welcome to this special joint episode between Grey History, the French Revolution and the Russian Rulers History Podcast. My name is Will Clark and I'm the host of Grey History and joining me today is Mark Shouse of the Russian Rulers History Podcast. How are you going Mark and how excited are you to discuss one of the greatest Russian monarchs of all time?
1: Oh, I, I love it. Uh, Catherine is one of my absolute favorites. Uh, there's so much to her
0: personality and her rule that it's, it's always exciting to talk about her. She's like, I find her not only one of the most fascinating Russian monarchs, but just one of the most fascinating monarchs in European history, more broadly. For those people who aren't, you know, intimately familiar with Catherine the Great, one of the things that they might discover early on and might surprise them is the fact that this Russian Empress is not in fact Russian. Are you able to give us a bit of background as to who Catherine was, where she came from and how she found herself not only in Russia, but on the Russian throne.
1: Sure, uh, Catherine was born uh, in 1729 in Stetten, which is in the province of Pomerania in the kingdom of Prussia, which was part of the Holy Roman Empire. And her birth name, nice long one, is Sophia Frederica Augusta von anhalt zerbst dornburg uh, She was German and uh, her parents were nobility. But they were relatively poor nobles. Uh, They were nobles in name. Uh, And she would meet her future husband, uh, who was also her second cousin, Uh, when she was just 10 years old. It was just some of the nobles because the future Peter III was also German. His uh, given name was Charles Peter Ulrich of Schleswig Holstein Gotthard. And he was related to. Uh, Peter the Great. He was a uh, son of his daughter, Anna, who would become Empress of Russia. So there were connections in there. And when uh, Empress Elizabeth, uh, who was the reigning Tsarina at the time, she was not having any children. She was not married. And she was looking for a uh, someone to take over after she passed away. And she also wanted to see if there could be a deal you know, made, and, and that's how most of the marriages went on in, in uh, Europe at the time, is how they can build alliances. And the one person who really wanted to build an alliance with Russia was Frederick the Great, who was the ruler of Prussia at the time in the Holy Roman Empire. So a deal was struck between Elizabeth and Frederick uh, to make this alliance, and that the two children would get married, the two second cousins, and this took place when Catherine, in 1745, when Catherine was a mere 16 years of age. But this was not a very happy marriage. I mean, there was uh, it was totally loveless. Uh, Catherine was pretty appalled when she saw Peter when she got to uh, Russia, because he had been affected by smallpox and that had scarred his face quite deeply, and he also had a very boorish behavior. And I did an episode based on one of the, uh, on Peter, based on a suggestion by one of my listeners that there perhaps that Peter III was autistic. And when I started looking at his behavior, and I, in my regular job as a, in the health field, I've lectured at a number of conferences, you know, on autistic children. I have an autistic child myself. And looking at it, he likely was autistic and a high-functioning one, but, I covered that in episode 213 of my podcast. So, you know, with with Catherine, when Elizabeth passed away, Peter became czar, and he was probably the most incompetent person to become a leader of a country as large as Russia. Uh, Strangely enough, uh, there was something called the Seven Years' War, and Russia was fighting Frederick the Great, and they were beating him pretty badly. And when Peter became uh, czar of Russia, he stopped the war, and he sided with Frederick, which caused the entire nobility of Russia to pretty much freak out because you know, thousands of Russians had died in this war. They had been fighting, and they were just about to defeat Frederick, and he was despondent. He thought that his kingdom was over, and he would die. And so, but somehow, you know, the gift came that Elizabeth died, and Peter took over, and decided to stop that war. That started putting pressure on the nobility to get rid of Peter at that time and place Catherine on the throne. Uh, the coup would uh, happen about a, six months after Elizabeth died. She died at uh, Christmas day in 1761. On June 27, 1762, the coup uh, took place and it was led by Grigory Orlov who's one of the lovers of Catherine and his four brothers in that Peter would be killed in the struggle. Uh, This, whether this was planned or not uh, is up, you know, it's up for debate. We don't know. Uh, It's pretty likely that they decided that, you know, he couldn't stay alive and there's a a TV series right now on, uh, I think it's Hulu about Catherine the Great. And so Peter's still been alive after three seasons. So, you know, it's it's a kind of a farce, but, Catherine did uh, take control. Uh, She had the backing of the military, which was really important, and uh, she became Zarina. Now, there was some precedence to this, because in Europe, it was rare that a woman could take uh, control of a country, but when Peter the Great died, his wife Catherine took over for a year, and then she was followed by Anna and Elizabeth. So there was precedent that a woman could take over, but there was a lot of animosity amongst the people, thinking, "Hey, you know, she killed the czar. Uh, is this really a legitimate, uh, you know, uh, takeover? You might say. Uh, you know, when Catherine died later, uh, many years later, her son Paul, who really hated her, uh, passed a rule that no woman could ever become czar of Russia again." So, uh, you know, she she got in there uh, through luck, through alliances, and then you know the murder of her husband, and that would. And there was one other person who might have had a claim to the throne, and that was uh, Ivan the or uh, the Sixth. And but he was uh, put into prison when he was a very young boy, like a few months old, and spent most of his life in prison with no contact with the outside world, and he was pretty much crazy. And there was an order that if he was ever freed, he would be killed immediately. And there was a plot to free him. And he was, you know, he was killed. He was probably about 18 or 19. Uh, And so, you know, she had eliminated uh, all her potential threats to her throne at that time.
0: What I find interesting, what you were just saying there around there being a precedent for a queen in Russia, if I compare that to the situation that that I'm more focused on at the moment, which is France, obviously uh, a, a queen ruling in her own right is not something that you see within the French kingdom, but it is something that you see not only in England but in Russia and a few other places. There are so many ways that she could be remembered, but she's not remembered as Catherine the German or Catherine the Usurper. She's remembered as Catherine the Great. Are you able to give us a picture of what were some of the great deeds that she did in her reign? Why is she remembered so fondly and with great acclaim? And yeah, we well, have to go back to uh, you know, what she was. I mean, she was
1: the last empress of Russia, and but she was also the longest serving female up to the time she started her rule on July 9th, 1762, and it would end 34 years later on November 11th, 1796. And she's one of only three Russian rulers who would be given the name of the Great, uh, the others being Peter, uh, who ruled in the late 17th, early 18th century, and Vladimir the Great, uh, who ruled in the early 11th century. And he was the one that uh, introduced or, or Russian orthodoxy to the people and had them convert from their pagan gods. Uh, Russia was a really... A, a very backwater country for a long time, especially when after the invasion of the Mongols in 1240, it was basically cut off at that point. It was kind of like a cultural wall but, uh, between Russia and Europe, which meant they never you know, went through the Renaissance. Uh, before the Mongols invaded, Russia was a very European country. Uh, some of the children, some of the rulers of Kyiv had married people like, uh, I think it was Henry I of France, and had married uh, other rulers and sons of rulers all over Europe. But then when the Mongols came, it was shut down. It was uh, Peter the Great who started saying, We need to really, truly westernize our country. We're so backwatered. Uh, we're so, uh, you know, we could be invaded very easily because we didn't have a very military. Peter would start it. And and actually his father Alexis did a little bit of that to bring uh, Russia back into Europe's uh, scope. But Catherine would really start pushing this Europeanization of the Russian uh, country. And there was a lot of people who were firmly against it. So it was a very difficult job for her. It was difficult for Peter, Uh, would be very difficult for her, but she was very strong-willed and she wanted, the Russians to become more culturally European. Uh, the resistance didn't come so much from the nobility. They really wanted to become uh, you know, more toward Europe and French was the big language of the court of Russia at the time. Uh, but the peasants were the ones and the serfs who were totally against this and wanted to go stay in the old time. And this would lead to uh, the greatest rebellion in the history of Russia until the Russian Revolution. And that was the Pugachev Rebellion of 1774. Uh, it was a time when this revolution and the rebellion actually was kind of the cutoff point when uh, Catherine no longer would become this uh, enlightened ruler, because she saw that there was a you know pretty big threat to her regime. But what Catherine did do is she was incredible in bringing uh, as a patron of the arts, uh, literature, education. But uh, today we see an example of it is the Hermitage Museum, which now occupies the whole Winter Palace. Uh, and it began as Catherine's personal collection of art. And uh, you know, by the 1770, by 1790 actually, the Hermitage was home to 38,000 books, 10,000 gems, and 10,000 drawings and paintings. Uh, she really brought the Renaissance to Russia, uh, especially culture, Sciences. Uh, They developed many new cities, universities, and theaters were founded, and it also caused a large number of Europeans to immigrate to Russia. And the way she handled things in the uh, russian turkish War and Russian-Persian War, it showed that Russia was now a great power to be dealt with. Uh, But I think one of her greatest achievements during her reign is making the smallpox vaccination a priority. As I said before, Peter the was scarred by the disease, as was Catherine, although to a far lesser effect. And millions of people died annually of this disease. Now, Catherine decided that she would set an example to her people that the vaccine, as administered by British physician Thomas Dimsdale, was safe and effective. At the time, this was an extremely brave action, and really should be applauded. Uh, I did a uh, interview with. Uh, British author Lucy Ward uh, earlier in this year on um, her book, which was The Empress and the English Doctor. And it's a fascinating story of the bravery of Catherine to allow this man uh, to administer this vaccine, prove that it was effective, and most importantly, prove that it was safe. And this is one of the reasons why we really give Catherine that sobriquet of the great, as she really did a lot Although we have to say that there were some issues with, you know, she wasn't all, you know, perfect, but she did do a lot of incredible accomplishments.
0: One of the um, little bits of information that I love about Catherine with her smallpox vaccination process is the fact that she turned it into. Uh, obviously, she had herself vaccinated, and then her son vaccinated, and then in encouraging the court to get vaccinated. She turned it into almost like a little bit of a competition and bragging rights, and she would be bragging that the rates of vaccination in the court of St. Petersburg were running far, far higher and far more frequently than the rates of vaccination in somewhere like the court of Vienna. And I I just found it amusing that, you know, Catherine was using the vaccination as a way to position herself against other monarchs of the time and using it as a way to boast the enlightened and forward approach of the Russian court. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. She, she was brilliant in that way. She could manipulate people uh, better than pretty much any monarch in world history. I mean, she just was a master at it. It was something that was, you know, she was like that since childhood. So it wasn't unsurprising that she could do that, but the way she did it in the scale was pretty remarkable.
0: One of the features that people might be surprised about uh, of Catherine's reign is the number of military uh, well, conflicts as well as military conquests that occur during her time on the throne. Are you able to paint a picture for those people that aren't necessarily as familiar with the threats and foes that Russia was dealing to in the time about her actions against not only the Ottoman Empire but also the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, and perhaps even, you know, we'll throw in her relationship with Sweden in there as well. Are you able to paint a broader picture of what the kind of geopolitical situation looked like for Catherine and the the military conquests or military endeavors that she pursued?
1: Sure. Uh, Russia, what people don't uh, realize that, you know, they always think that the Russians had been invaded maybe two or three times. Uh, you know, we had Napoleon, of course, uh, we had, with Alexander I, who was the grandson of Catherine. Then you had uh, the Mongols, of course. and you have Adolf Hitler. But there were a lot more uh, invasions of uh, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, as you mentioned. The Poles actually, during some period called the Time of Troubles, before the Romanovs became the uh, rulers of Russia, the Poles actually occupied Moscow. Uh, we also had the Swedes under Charles XII. Who invaded and were beaten back was beaten back by Peter the Great and uh, with the great uh, Battle of Poltava. Uh, there were a lot, and the Ottomans, of course, they would invade Russian and Ukrainian territories and capture people there, then sell them in the slave markets in Constantinople. So there was always a threat from all over, from the you know the Western European side, from the southern side. Uh, the Mongols had already been defeated by 1480, so they weren't a threat anymore. But there were some what they call Khanates, like the Crimean Khanate that would still rattle their sabers at the uh, the Russians. And they had to be quelled. And then you always had the uh, Russo-Turkish wars. I think there were oh, 12 of them total. And so Catherine had to deal with that. But she had some really top-notch generals one of whom was Alexander Suvorov. Uh, he was one of the few uh, generals in the history of mankind to uh, retire and die undefeated. I think he'd won something like 87 battles with no defeats. There was also the uh, Persian conflict with Russia at the time of Catherine. She was able to win territories, and then she was able to uh, partition, was one of the first partitions of Poland, into. Russian territory, and she did that along with the uh, the Austrians, and and they were and, and the Prussians were able to just start divvying up Poland. So there was a lot of conflicts. There were a lot of threats to her. Uh, the Pugachev rebellion, as I mentioned, was huge. There were over two hundred thousand people in the rebellion, and they were slaughtering uh, nobles in the countryside. And uh, you know they had defeated the Russian army a couple of times before they were finally overwhelmed and Pukachov himself was executed. So she did have an awful lot of threats, but she had modernized the military enough so that Russia was now one of the most preeminent powers in all of Europe.
0: You mentioned before that Catherine did not have the best relationship with her heir. Are you able to elaborate on why that tension existed? And just, you know, how her reign ended, was she also overthrown or did she die naturally? And, and, and are you able to kind of uh, expand on her family dynamics and that succession? Sure.
1: Uh, when Catherine gave birth to her son, Paul, he was taken away from her right after he was born. She was left there, you know, right after birth, no care. Uh, Empress Elizabeth just took the boy and started raising him was kind of a very cold early relationship. She never was able to bond with this young boy. Uh, She also didn't have very much respect for him, didn't think he was qualified to become the czar as he grew older. Uh, Probably part of it was, you know, this upbringing which was very cold and and calculated. Uh, So they never had a really deep relationship. There was a period of time when he was a young boy where they would have some you know, good times together, but they were few and far between. Uh, when Paul and his wife had a child, uh, Alexander, she took the baby away herself and had them cared by others. Uh, she would also send him off to Europe to just get away from the, from the palace. And, and there was plans that, had she lived long enough, that Paul was not going to be the heir and it would be Alexander. So when she died, and she did die, uh, you know, in 1796, (laughs) the the legend is, and this is pretty much true, she died while uh, in the uh, toilet, and she suffered a stroke and died, and then she was about to name Alexander the heir, but Paul was able to find that document, and he destroyed it before anybody else could see it. So, there, there wasn't much of a relationship there with, with uh, Paul at any time. So uh, that's why one of the big things that he did early on was to ban women from ever ruling Russia again. It was just because of his animosity towards his mother.
0: I note as well, I believe he, uh, he went after some of the conspirators that were still alive that helped overthrow his father and put Catherine on the throne In you know, in the several decades before.
1: Yeah, there was one of them, uh, her lover, uh, Grigori uh, Potemkin, uh, who Paul had his body removed from his grave and tossed into the river. I was left of it. And so he, he was a very vindictive man. He did not uh, appreciate the people that helped her and or uh, and he, she was very generous to her lovers and she had quite a number of them. I did an episode on that. Uh, she, any any of them who were in the St. Petersburg area was kind of just dismissed, taken away. Uh, there, many of them had, who were still alive, and much of the riches that she gave him uh, taken away. So yeah, she he was uh, pretty vindictive against anybody that he thought slighted him or was uh, on her side. And he also had a lot of rules that she put into play dismissed because he did not want any legacy of hers, and he also uh, had her buried next to his father Peter the Third, and you know, it was another slight toward his mother because she despised Peter.
0: If my memory serves me right, his own reign is quite troubled and not exactly long. Is that correct? Yeah, he uh, he was very disliked by the.
1: Uh, Uh, the powers that be, you know, the other nobility. And uh, he was also, uh, there was a coup, and he was killed in the fight. Uh, And Alexander, his son was, you know, then put into place as the new czar. And Alexander himself felt very guilty about that, that his father would be uh, killed by the conspirators. And but none of them would really go punished for what they did. Uh, You know, Alexander would go on and there is a rumor that he felt so guilty that he in the seven in the uh, 1820s, he faked his own death and became a monk named Fyodor Kuzman. And uh, there's a debate between scholars and uh, authors of Russian history as to whether this is true or not. I believe the evidence is that Alexander felt very bad about it and did indeed become this, you know, wandering monk who somehow could speak multiple languages fluently like French and, uh, you know, and had hands that looked like they had never uh, worked a day in their life. So, you know, there was a lot of guilt within the family at the time.
0: Well, it's uh, it's certainly a family full of uh, drama, to say the least. You mentioned earlier that uh, the, the key revolt that Catherine experienced during her reign marked a bit of a line in the sand moment for her reign as an enlightened monarch. Are you able to elaborate on why Catherine is associated with the Enlightenment, how she interacted with the ideas of the time, and perhaps even her relationship with some of the leading thinkers of the age? Sure. Uh, you
1: know, with Catherine, it's really a mixed bag as to the ideas of the Enlightenment, and the reason we know that she was interested in new and liberal ideas was because of her correspondence and meetings with two French uh, people, uh, Diderot and Voltaire. She had lots of, uh, we we have the letters, we know of what she uh, was writing to them and what her thoughts were, and Uh, I think it was Diderot who visited her, and actually, they would have long discussions about liberalism and enlightenment. And in writing, yes, she was, you know, what they call the enlightened uh, Russian ruler. But we have to remember she was also an autocratic ruler of Russia. Uh, She talked the talk, but she didn't impose these ideals when it came to the lives, the everyday lives, of the majority of people. Some authors I've actually read that have accused her of being a total fraud, but I think that's going way too far. I mean, she introduced a broader access to education. That was something that was not given to uh, the average Russian person. Uh, She elevated the role of women in society unlike anyone before or after her. Uh, Women were able to go into jobs and and important ones that we would never see before. I mean, in science, she had a, a woman was one of the directors of the, the science uh, community in Russia, which is you know unbelievable at the time. and uh, But we have to understand something about her. She did nothing for the millions and millions of serfs who were for the most part illiterate, had no real hope for a better life. And this is you know why one of the reasons for the uh, Pugachev rebellion uh, was Catherine. You know, As I said, she was such a patron of the arts and, and all that, and that was very enlightened as well. One of the things that we do have to know is how many of these serfs that she could have freed, but didn't, uh, this was part of the discussion she had with Diderot and Voltaire, that you know, this was a, an abomination serfdom and much of Europe had already abandoned the serf system. Uh, in a census that was taken in 1754, to about 1762, it was found that Catherine herself owned 500,000 serfs, uh, and a further 2.8 million belonged to the Russian state itself. And the, actually, the Russian Orthodox Church had a number of serfs as well. Uh, by the time they were emancipated under Tsar Alexander II in 1861, it is estimated that 23 million Russians were privately owned and 18.3 million were in the state ownership, and about 900,000
0: were owned by the Tsar. Her relationship with the Enlightenment is indeed full of ambiguity, and I quite enjoy it. I also like, you know, there was clearly, as you alluded to earlier, a limit as to what she was willing to embrace, Uh, and there were certain writers, particularly more moderate Enlightenment thinkers like Montesquieu that she was uh, more warm to, then there was people like Diderot that, as you say, she initially, she actually bought his library for him at one point and helped uh, pay him uh, essentially a stipend, if you like, to help keep him going. But as he became more radical and more associated with the ideas of popular sovereignty and rejecting the ideas of an Enlightened monarchy, the two of them did start to drift apart. It is fascinating where she was willing to embrace the ideas of the Enlightenment, things like religious toleration, for example, education, as you mentioned, and then where she was not willing to embrace the Enlightenment. And I noticed that in some of her writings, she criticizes uh, some of her closest aides and um, officials, if if you like, about serfdom and about their Inability or their reluctance to even consider the idea of emancipating the serfs, but as you point out, there were no shortage of serfs under her own direct control. And as much as she writes as or laments about how even some of her close advisors are not willing to reform serfdom, she herself hardly leads the cause. And you know, there's a variety of ways that you can interpret that. But it is interesting that uh, such an such an egregious activity that is criticized by many Enlightenment thinkers of the day. She is ultimately is willing to accept and does not make significant inroads, really any noticeable inroads uh, to, their, to the betterment of their quality of life. Yeah, i am
1: actually uh, written the scripts for a future uh, series about what happened to the Russian nobility after the Russian Revolution. Uh, my family was part of the nobility. Uh, they got out before early enough that they were able to retain their wealth. And many of them though went to Paris, went to France because they spoke the language. Many of them had been to Paris and France uh, quite often in the past. Uh, So they, you know, that's part of this whole enlightenment that starting with Catherine that there was French was starting to become part of the lingua franca of, you know, Russian nobility. Uh, but many of the ones who made it out and got to you know, Paris in the uh, early 1920s were broke. I mean, these were people who were extravagantly wealthy. I mean, it, you know, basically the billionaires of today going to having nothing and having to work as cab drivers or seamstresses, uh, it was a, a big drop for them. Uh, and some of them came to the United States over time. You know, but some did well, and then I do have another episode of those who stayed, and that's as tragic of a, as you can imagine. You know, especially under Stalin, what happened to them. But yeah, the uh, the Russian aristocracy. I don't have a lot of. Uh, you know, <laughs> I don't feel too bad for what they lost because they really didn't understand what was going on with the people, and as much as they talked enlightenment, they did not practice it.
0: I think that's completely understandable. And it, it is interesting, you know, the disconnect between uh, the walk and the talk. Um, and that that's perhaps um, opens up a, a segue to, to Catherine and her attitude towards the French Revolution. Are you able to give us a bit of a snapshot as to how Catherine perceived and thought of the French Revolution? She
1: was absolutely appalled by it. Uh, she viewed it as a threat to herself. Uh, she thought they were, the handling of uh, the last French king to be just horrific, the way they treated him. They, she didn't think that there was any reason to execute him or Marie Antoinette. Uh, she th- thought that they were uh, pretty horrible people in the French Revolution. She was absolutely dead set against it. And, you know, this would continue on when you have the... Uh, revolutions in, in Europe in the 1848 period uh, where the Russian uh, czar at the time would just say, no, we could not have this. You know, We have to support the monarchy. She was a monarchist through and through. So when the revolution occurred, uh, she was thoroughly appalled. Uh, that was, it just shook her to her you know, very soul. And I think that was the second uh, shock after the Pugachev Rebellion to her and where she became more and more uh, autocratic and less and less enlightened.
0: Hello everybody. This is a quick reminder that I need your help, not someone else's but yours, to keep grey history on the air. I've left my job, I've moved out of where I was living, I'm doing everything I can to bring you more grey history more often. But I can't do it alone. Patreon supporters gain access to almost half a dozen bonus episodes, along with all the episode extras, behind-the-scenes videos, and an ad-free feed. You'll also know all the great content that I have planned, including future joint episodes and interviews, giving you the chance to ask questions ahead of time. You can cancel any time, but for as little as $2 a regular episode, you can help Grey History stay on the air. Furthermore, Patrons on the True Revolutionary tier and above get early access to new content, and the fantastic episode 45, First Republic, Then Dictatorship, is waiting for them right now. So please, if you find grey history entertaining, if you find it educational, then I need your help. For a small contribution, you can help promote history that isn't oversimplified, and ensure more grey history will be waiting for you tomorrow. What I find fascinating about Catherine the Great's relationship with the French Revolution is the complete and utter disconnect that I find, or at least I perceive, between her rhetoric and her actions. And what I mean by that is that she would, you know, if, if you just looked at her rhetoric, you would forgive yourself for thinking that she was leading the counter-revolutionary crusade, that she was at the head of the the armies of the first coalition. She has these lines where she talks about that there's no greater glory than to crush French anarchy. As you said, she absolutely detested the revolution once it had hit that more radical phase, once it had uh, overthrown the king and declared itself a republic and and ultimately executed its monarchs. But then if you look at its actions, you do not see Russian troops in the field in the first war, in in the war of the first coalition. It is primarily led by the Prussians and the Austrians, obviously the British and the Spanish and a range of others get involved, but the Russians stay out of it. And it's not until after her reign that you see Russian troops against French troops and more into the Napoleonic Wars. And I've all and there's a range of reasons why historians debate that to be the case, which I I can get into. But I've always found it fascinating, this disconnect between her uh, zealot like rhetoric really against the revolution And yet the absence of Russian soldiers on the field to help crush that revolution. I I just think that she wanted to stay
1: out of that. She didn't see any way that it would be a win-win situation for her. Uh, And I think part of it was her times with the discussions with Diderot and Voltaire that maybe held her back. Said, you know, maybe I set this one out and let them deal with their own problems instead of uh, you know, interfering with it. I think that's part of it, that she had those discussions and it gave her pause for doing something. I mean, she could go out there and rattle her saber all she wanted, but to actually do something, she said, maybe that's not the right thing for me to do at this point. And it was just this difficulty within her own thinking and soul that prevented her from going forward.
0: Some of the other reasons that I know that, it, that get uh, debated amongst historians as to her relationship with the revolution and, and why there's that disconnect is what was happening in Poland at this time. Some historians present a case that, that all this rhetoric from Catherine the Great is, is essentially a smokescreen, and she was hoping to entangle Prussia and Austria in a war with France to give her a free hand in Poland. And indeed, The second and third third and final partitions of Poland would occur during the first years of the Revolutionary War in early 1793 and then 1795. And she would invade Poland in 1792, just weeks after the outbreak of the Revolutionary War in April 1792 between um, Austria and France, and then Prussia joins shortly thereafter. But the flip side to that, which I also find quite interesting, is that Is is the argument that Catherine did have the will, so to speak, of becoming militarily involved in France, Um, but because of uprisings and anti-Russian sentiment in Poland, uh, as well as being weakened by relatively recent uh, wars with Turkey and with the Ottoman Empire and with Sweden, essentially from a from both the military point of view and from the treasury point of view, Russia was fairly exhausted. And so, by the time that you had the polish occupation as well she just wasn't russia wasn't really in a position to be able to lend significant manpower to crushing the revolution because ultimately she had a list of priorities as empress of russia and while crushing the revolution was was perhaps on that list or was on that list it wasn't uh as high as as ensuring that poland remained a vassal and you know the domestic threats closer to home
1: yeah uh, it was a a big drain on the Russian treasury and something that Catherine's very defensive about. She had seen, you know, the history of Russia where they would run out of money because of all the wars. I mean, what, when Peter the Great was going to war, uh, they taxed the Russian people quite a bit and it really hurt the economy. So she was, you know, very aware that there was a danger that this would occur again and that she would have to uh, fight off. Uh, her foes. You know, there were, she still had a lot of people who distrusted her, didn't like her, uh, wanted her off the throne. So she had to be very cognizant of that. And if the treasury would go down and the economy would get hurt, she was under threat because she always had in the back of her mind that people thought of her as an illegitimate ruler of Russia. That she only got in because of a coup. She only got in because you know other people had supported her, and she didn't want to run the risk of losing that support. So you know, as she aged, also she lost a lot of that vim and vigor of wanting to go to war, and you know, to continue the fights. And Poland was her big uh, focus. Uh, she had one other one. She wanted uh, Russia to be in control of Constantinople to return to the time before the uh, Muslim con- the Ottoman conquest of that you know, great uh, Orthodox city. So she would you know, probe deeper and deeper there. So her focus was more on Constantinople and uh, Poland than having to worry about the French. That, that to her was just too far away
0: and would be way too expensive for her to try the other thing that uh, you know she would argue if you ha- if you, you know if Catherine was here joining us and we were talking about her actions in relation to the French Revolution i'm sure she would argue that in uh, her military intervention in poland that she was fighting the french revolution she explicitly states that she is fighting jacobinism and jacobins in poland and so i'm sure that if she was here with us right now while Russian troops do not enter the War of the First Coalition, she would very much make the case that actually she was still fighting that ideology. And and of course, she could point out she did, the Russians did close their ports um, from trade purposes to the French. They did exert diplomatic power on some of the smaller uh, states such as Denmark to try to prevent them from assisting the French. And I should point out that uh, a small squadron uh, was sent in i think 1795 uh, under the leadership of the british to help in some naval activities so catherine did you know was involved in the war to some extent it would it would be incorrect to say that the, the russians weren't helping at all but as you point out her priority was definitely poland uh, to a lesser extent the greek project of of restoring the orthodox byzantine empire so to speak under the watch of of the russians and uh, it, was just a, it was just a range of other priorities. And the one other thing, actually, that I think is worth uh, mentioning, and, and you mentioned, you kind of touched on this before, Catherine the Great has her own set of priorities that are different from the other powers. And for her, if she was looking at what victory looked like in a war against revolutionary France, her definition would have been different from the Austrians or the Prussians, The Austrians or the Prussians, for example, would have been looking to partition France to gain at France's expense. But from Catherine's point of view, the last thing she wants is for Austria or Prussia to be gaining in power as a result of a defeated France, because then they could turn around and use that power and influence in Poland, in the Balkans, in her own backyard. So she was very much a supporter, one of the few real supporters of the French émigrés and the younger brothers of King Louis XVI in trying to, you know, her her best outcome is a restored monarch on the French throne in a a France remaining united and therefore one um, king that would be dependent or, or grateful to or in debt to the Russian throne. And so another aspect that can be argued by historians as to why she didn't get involved as much as she might was because fundamentally, you know, while, while Prussia and Austria and England and Russia could all agree on crushing the French Revolution, they had a very different definition of what, what a good outcome looked like.
1: Yeah, each one of them had their own, uh, I might just say, uh, agenda. You know, the British were, there was a concern with the British about Russia, especially because it was so close to India, which is one of their crown jewels. So they didn't want Russia too powerful, you know. Uh, as you mentioned, with the Balkans, have to be careful with Austria. Don't want them to get too much control over there, uh, you know. And the Prussians, and we just want to keep all the powers just strong enough so that they wouldn't invade each other, but weak enough that they wouldn't be able to gain control of some of the areas that Russia wanted, that Austria wanted, that England wanted. You know, there was trade amongst the countries too, and they just, but they didn't want to enrich. Each other too much you know england was on that big expansion at the time and so they were you know trying to become that world power we didn't want russia to be that big and that would bear out uh, during the crimean war in the 1850s that finally they said well russia's just gotten too powerful we
0: got to stop this so well that's the thing a lot of people don't necessarily think of of the of great britain and russia being enemies but actually, when the Revolutionary War broke out, the two had had frosty relationships at the time. And as part of their their negotiations of kind of coming on the one side, uh, trade deals were renewed and the like. But as you point out, 60 years later, in the mid 1850s, you have the Crimean War. There were um, con- all all sorts of concerns around Russian potential Russian influence in the Middle East and India. And so even these two great peripheral powers, one on the far west of continental Europe, one on the far east, even they couldn't necessarily agree and could find reasons to disagree. So it is, it is fascinating, the court politics of the uh, 18th century and even going all the way through into, into the more modern day that we know it now.
1: And a lot of the, uh, you know, the tensions between Russia and Europe right now you know, started back around the time of Catherine. So, you know, we have these various powers that want to uh, check each other. And so, you know, that's a whole other (laughs) discussion we could have for days on end on all the ramifications of the decisions that were made by people like Catherine and the British and the uh, Austrian and Prussian
0: monarchs. Before we wrap up, is there anything else that you think people should know about Catherine the Great or perhaps what Russia was like at the time uh, under her rule or anything about uh, her more broadly? Yeah. uh, One of the things about, you know, her patronage of the arts was the uh, development
1: of literature in Russia, which she kind of, as I talked before, that Russia, you know, didn't go through the Renaissance in the time that Western Europe did, but literature really began to develop in the arts under her. Uh, Russia had a very poor... Uh, literary heritage. You know, the British had Shakespeare and before Chaucer and Russians didn't have that. You know, we, it was mostly church documents. She really started pushing this development of literature within Russia and the different great writers came about because of her introduction of education into Russia. We would not have a Leo Tolstoy or a Anton Chekhov or Dostoyevsky or the first Russian to win the Nobel Prize, Ivan Bunin. We wouldn't have had their great literature and the arts of music like Tchaikovsky and Mazorsky would not have arrived if not for this woman who really pushed uh, the country toward a more Western style in the arts and started developing that. And that's one of the other reasons that we really view her as being the great because she introduces something into Russia and changes their very soul to become more European and less Oriental.
0: Well, as you said, there's uh, only only three rulers that have, or are referred to as the Great in Russian history. And I think it's more than appropriate that she's referred to as Catherine the Great. And and personally, I think she's one of the more interesting and more successful monarchs, not only of of Russian history, but of European history more broadly in, in that age. Yeah, and that's why I did quite a number
1: of uh, episodes in my podcast on Catherine. And just glad when you when you offered to talk about her that you know, I got that one more time I can talk about <laughs> this woman because yeah. it, it is her influence is still being felt today in, in Russia and all over the
0: world. Well, speaking of those episodes, uh, for the benefit of my listeners that aren't familiar necessarily with the Russian Rulers History Podcast, are you able to give a quick summary of what you're doing over there and? what you're exploring and what the podcast is about? Sure. Uh, When I started 12 years ago, uh, April 30th of uh, 2010,
1: I wanted to cover all the rulers of Russia. And I figured this would take me about a year or two. I'd be done with it. But once I got to Putin and got through all of them, I said, you know, there's so much more to this country. And, you know, I know right now it's somewhat unpopular. I've gotten some... uh, Nasty emails about you know why am I supporting Russia, which I'm not in this you know conflict that's going on right now. And I actually did have an episode about what my feelings were about the conflict in Ukraine. Uh, I began to see all the different nuances of the country. Uh, right now, I'm in the midst of a a four-part series on the year of 1917, and you know what went on during that year, why the czar you know finally fell, what happened with the revolution. Uh, I wanted to get away from some of the uh, Bolshevik uh, propaganda that they were, you know, somehow they were able to overthrow this government. Uh, There's a number of historians who said, it is the most unlikely uh, coup in the history of mankind for the Bolsheviks to even have had a chance to gain control of a country as big as Russia. And I think that's kind of fascinating. I'm doing series on, you know, the development of literature. Uh, And I just, I'm doing, a a series that I've been writing that's going to come out in November about some of the great writers of Russian history, like Ivan Bunin, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, and Maxim Gorky. So, you know, it's, there's so many different topics about Russia. And I also talk about Ukraine because Ukraine is where Russia started in the city of Kiev. That's where the heart of and soul of Russia began. And I want people to understand that, uh, you know, what what is a Russian? You know, What are we doing? And one half of my family was part of the Russian Admiralty. Uh, we just learned, my brother and I have just learned about who were the uh, people who sponsored my family to come to the United States in 1953. And one of them was Igor Sikorsky who signed the papers to allow my parents to come here. And, and another one that we found that my grandfather had worked under uh, Grand Prince Vladimir Alexandrovich Romanov was uh, one of the uncles of the last Tsar Nicholas II. There's a passion of that I have for Russia and Russian history. I'm very saddened by what's going on now, and by the current ruler. But that's current events. I want to talk about some of the riches of Russia so people can understand. And I'm also just finished uh, my first book on uh, Russian history called Understanding Putin. It should be available within the next month, and it's it's a two two books that I've been working on on trying to understand who Vladimir Putin is through the history of Russia. And so it'll be available as an ebook and you'll be able to find it at the, uh, you know, we'll make announcements on the podcast and at my blog site of uh, RussianRulersHistory.com.
0: We'll make sure that we put a, a link in the show notes and also to those Catherine, the great episodes that you mentioned earlier. It is uh, it is clear your passion For the topic. It definitely comes through in the podcast. And for those people that are looking for another podcast to sink their teeth into, there are literally hundreds of episodes of the Russian Rulers History podcast that you can catch up on and that that are waiting for you right now. As uh, already
1: 237 and on Sunday, episode 238 will be released. So I have quite a number of, uh, you know, hours and hours and hours and you know I'm kind of honored that there are universities that actually use my podcast in their classes one of being Oxford one of the professors there that you know I really try to be as fair as possible not try to put my own personal beliefs although sometimes that squeezes in there you know about how what I think about things and some of my personal prejudices but for the most part I try to present what we know of as the facts about this country and you know, I have to go back to uh, when I was in college, at Queens College in New York, and my Russian history professor told me that I would never teach Russian history because I didn't have a firm enough grip on the language and that I only spoke what he called kuchni ruski, which is kitchen Russian. Uh, I've had over 1.4 million people listen to at least one of my episodes over the past 12 years. So sorry, Dr. Average, I have taught Russian history
0: after all. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, my. It's definitely better than my Russian. I think I can summon about three words or so. So it's it's not even kitchen Russian. <laughs>
1: yeah, it's 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 a difficult ru- language to learn. Uh, you know, I didn't get too deep into it. Um, speak more of uh, German than I do Russian, but it's still a fascinating topic. And I want to thank you for just having me on here, so we could talk about one of the most fascinating people in Russian history, Catherine the Great.
0: No, any time to uh, to admit her from uh, the records would be would be a, an absolute mistake. She is one of the greats of her time, and she plays a significant role in the in Age of Enlightenment and on the Russian uh, not on the not on the well, no. yes on the Russian Revolution of sorts, but also more so on the French Revolution as well. So, thank you for taking the time. You bet. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this special interview with Mark Schaus of the Russian Rulers History Podcast. You can find Mark's amazing work on all major podcast apps and there's links in the show notes for not only the podcast, but also his previous episodes on Catherine the Great. As a reminder, if you're enjoying Grey History, if you're keen for more regular narrative episodes along with special content like interviews and joint episodes, then I need your support to make that a reality. For as little as $2 per future regular episode, that is to say $2 for the main narrative episodes, you can help do your part to keep Grey History going. If you stop listening, you can cancel any time, but I really do need your help. Furthermore, those patrons on the True Revolutionary tier and above get early access to future episodes, and Episode 45, First Republic, Then Dictatorship, is waiting for you right now. So please, support Grey History and help keep the show on the air. As always, thank you for listening. Thank you to the patrons of the show. Stay safe and
1: have a great day.